to the Sojourn Church podcast. We are glad you are here, and thanks for listening. As a church, we exist to exalt and enjoy the supremacy of Jesus Christ in all things, equip the saints, and extend the gospel to all people by reproducing disciples and churches for the glory of God. More information about the life and mission of Sojourn Church can be found at SojournTulsa.org. That's S-O-J-O-U-R-N, Tulsa.org. We um, are going to be turning to 1 Peter 5 to start out this morning. Um, like I said, we're going to be taking a break from our regular um, series in the, the, the parables. Um, and we're going to be taking today as this um, first time of elder insulation. And so um, uh, a great, great thing to celebrate uh, in the Lord's faithfulness of that. Um, there are lots of different um, variations that, that churches go through as far as their leadership. And so um, there, are, uh, there are many different ways that people interpret what that leadership should look like. Um, and you don't want to get to the place where you believe, um, hey, we, our church, the church we go to, Ours does it right. We are the only biblical ones. God uses different people, and there are many places that have incredible works of God going on, incredibly godly people. Um, and, and you don't want to get to the point of, of thinking um, the spiritual pride of we do everything correct. Therefore, God, look at all that we're doing. And so you, if you get to heaven, you find out that um, your beliefs, your theology, your, your church um, uh, functionality, the way that you did ministries, the way that you did um, the, the, the leadership, all your ecclesiology, if those things are right, your doctrine, your outworkings, if you get to heaven and find out you're right on you know, 88% of those or 92%, it would only be a time of humbling and grace. It would only be a time of you bowing more on God's grace towards you, that you weren't left out in this camp out here at this church that, that had everything just whacked out and crazy. That man, God, you, you surrounded us with some really godly people. You surrounded with us with a church that, that taught God's word, that was led by the Spirit. And so in all those things, it should only produce more humility. And so as we even go into a time of bringing on elders, um, we don't look down on a church or think of other churches that don't have elders as less than us. You definitely don't go into a church plant thinking, hey, we're doing a church plant because finally we're going to do everything right. Because God uses tiny, tiny little things. And even, even times when we are out of line, God's grace covers so much. And so it should only produce more humility. We should be humbled and thankful and more and more dependent on God. And so I'm um, just stating that out at uh, just this idea of, of coming to the foot of the cross, even on a day where you're installing elders, a beautiful picture of God's faithfulness. So um, we're going to just kind of walk through three glimpses of Peter um, at different stages there. And the reason I wanted to do this is because um, Jamie and I, as you can know, we just got back from the Harbor Network, Church Planting Networks, um, our leadership summit. They do that in October. They have the pastor and wives retreat in the spring. And so as we get together, there's no celebrities. Um, there's no, um, I, I, in fact, the, the one celebrity that was kind of there was Jared Wilson. So if remember, we went through the gospel-driven church. And so as Jamie and I landed, we went to dinner. And as soon as we landed for dinner, we um, landed for dinner. We landed the plane. Um, I wasn't flying the plane, by the way. We were just on. And so um, then we get there. We, we quickly go to dinner. And uh, Ronnie and Melissa Martin are there. And they help in different areas of the Harbor Network. 
And um, then um, here's Jared Wilson. And I didn't even recognize Jared Wilson. And I did the snub thing on accident. I wanted to kind of say hi to Ronnie and Melissa, give them a hug. And Jared Wilson sitting here and his wife. And I didn't even say hi to him. I, I, did, I just completely like just went on and our, our table was right next to theirs. And so then later on, I was like, I think that's Jared Wilson, Jamie. And so um, I, I don't do the thing where I go up and like, hey, will you, will you sign my back or something? You know, and so I don't do that big celebrity thing. Our network is is trying to actually stay away and not have the celebrity status. So they don't try to uh, bring in the, the high, high name guys and they just go, hey, we're a network that's trying to be in the gritty places, getting the gospel to as many people as we can. And so um, every time we go, it's such an encouragement to see that every single time the gospel is central. Um, if a church or a movement or a denomination um, removes the gospel of Christ and starts to marginalize it, whether that is for um, their own success, their own name, for pragmatics, for numbers, um, for um, works that look really good to the world, social injustice issues. If you marginalize the gospel, you're you're on a path that's going to lead away. The Spirit um, will not be a part of that. And so it's so encouraging to hear every single time that they bring in people that just over and over telling us just continue to, to plead with the Lord for him to do work and continue to stick with the gospel. And so um, that was an encouragement. Um, and so um, hearing those things, we, we got to hear a lot about just this particular cultural moment that we're in. Um, um, one of the guys had spent some time with Ed Stetzer. Many of you know Ed Stetzer's kind of a missiologist and an expert that a lot of people um, turn to as far as those surveys and kind of a, a big, broad perspective on the American church. And they had just had a podcast with Stetzer or were on Stetzer's podcast a couple of weeks ago. And he was talking about in that podcast that all these pastors and, and theologians keep referring to this as a post-pandemic time that kind of we've had this restart, but yet... It's Monday, and it's not like the fierceness of, of those early days in 2020 was there or that, that, that the spread of the virus is so bad now. So all that's calmed down, but we're still dealing with a, a global economy and many things in our lives, uh, many places and churches. Some of our friends up in New York and California, they literally just recently stopped having to wear masks. And I was like, are you kidding me? I was like, I thought that was over you know, a year and a half ago. And so some places, they were, they were just also in certain um, counties being allowed to meet at a certain number of people, which I thought was crazy. So here we are, this far removed, and yet life is still a little weird um, for a lot of people. Uh, and in our area, we, we, didn't, we only shut down for five or six weeks, and we were able to do virtual. For some people, they've remained virtual. Um, and so uh, those things are just a particular cultural climate we're in created a situation where there was a lack of trust in all kinds of media. There's a lack of trust in all kinds of uh, government, in all kinds of science, in all kinds of medical, in all kinds of church leadership, in all kinds of things. All of us, who can you listen to? Who can you trust? And so in all of that, it's just a different scenario that we're in. And so what a beautiful time. So you could look at it as the negative, but you could go, hey, what a beautiful thing that, that Jesus could step in to go, I am the truth. I'm the way. I'm like, if you can't trust anything else, you can trust me. I've never changed. And so I hope that's what you walk away with today as we even see just this little side note of elder insulation, that the faithfulness of God, whatever cultural climate you're in, whatever 
political climate you're in, um, all of those things, to see the faithfulness of God. He's not going to abandon his church. And so let's take a look first at 1 Peter um, uh, chapter 5. And so if you, if you think through this, just um, historically, a couple of things about the book of 1 Peter. First of all, it's, it's at least 30, maybe 35 years beyond when Jesus um, flew up to heaven, right? So in that, you had a whole bunch of people who were under persecution. So Peter's writing this to some people who were going through persecution. And the idea, if you're going through persecution, is, Lord, why, if we're your followers, why are you allowing us to go through difficult times? We've been looking at that at the parables, right? Uh, remember what Jesus had said, hey, the, the evil one's going to come and sow weeds. Believers, listen, you're going to be surrounded by sin, by those who bring evil. And so Peter, 35 years later, is writing this book to a whole bunch of people who are going through persecution, and he's wanting to restore their, their focus on the Lord. And so um, another thing with this is some of the people in this book and also First uh, Thessalonians, there are some ideas that some people even believe, there was a little bit of fear, that they may have missed the Lord's second coming. That they may have, um, that, that Jesus ascended to heaven and had talked about, I'm coming back to get my church. And then it's like the Left Behind series. Um, and Tim LaHaye had nothing to do with it for them. They, they literally just felt like, oh, maybe we missed it. And we, we missed the Lord's coming. And so um, Peter writing this to remind them of these truths. So at the end, he gets to the end of this, this book and he's writing to these believers there. And if you remember in the first part, he's talking to these that are dispersed. So it's these little pockets. They were going through a rough situation culturally um, in, in their climate as well. And so here's what he says in chapter 5. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So Father, we, we come to you asking for you to give us the understanding that you have about your church. Give us the understanding that you would want your people, the body of Christ, to have about you as we go into times that, that we don't understand, as we go into climates, political climates, cultural climates, church climates that we, we don't understand, would you let us walk away today with, with resting in your faithfulness? We, we can't know exactly what these believers were going through. They felt persecuted. They felt abandoned. Some were fearful that, 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 that the second coming had already happened, and yet you were speaking to them. And the Spirit was speaking to them. And so through your word, would you do that? Would you strengthen us this morning? Would you allow us to celebrate what you're doing, even in a time where it may seem like there's not a lot of celebrations going on? Father, I pray specifically for younger people, um, for, for those under 18. I, I pray for um, them to, to, to understand that there is a faithful God, to understand that, that Jesus hasn't changed that he is still leading and guiding his church. And would you secure their hearts um, as, as they see the church, um, as they get older, diminish in, in different ways? Would you bring a revival in hearts, Lord? We pray that you would be the only one that get the glory out of that. We pray that it wouldn't be churches and their pragmatics or their systems, but that you would show us in our weakness that you're very, very strong. 
And so we come desperately needing you. In your name we pray. Amen. So um, this picture that, that Peter's wanting to paint for them, we're going to go, this is at the end, and we're going to go backwards a little bit in the next couple of sections. But this is at the end, and I want you to think through, where did he get these ideas? How did Peter land on these solid, beautiful things? What was it that was established in his heart and mind as he goes through this? Um, notice he says, as a past witness to the suffering of Christ. So this has got legitimacy. And so you, you, if you've studied anything about church history, you know Peter and Paul, um, there were, there, there's been literally thousands of people killed um, in, in the early church in the Roman Empire uh, because of we're the, we're the lineage of Peter. We are the lineage of Paul. And so people that fought, and, and thousands of people have died because they thought that, and we're going to get to this in a second, where he says, um, your name is Peter, Petros. And so upon this rock, um, the church is established. And so they, they took that to mean literally we have to be tied to Peter and that Peter has all this authority. So remember the Pope um, and, and all the popes? The idea in the Roman Catholic system is that all the popes are tied back to Peter and upon Peter is the significance. Well, that's not what Jesus meant there. He was just saying upon this type of faith, because what Peter just said there was, you are the Christ the Son of God. And so that upon that, this faith, the church is established, not specifically a person. They took it wrong. And so to this day, that's why the Pope has so much power, control. That's why there's uh, so many different abuses that have been in the Roman Catholic system. And so Peter's just saying there, I saw firsthand the sufferings of Christ. That's legitimacy. And so then he says, along with that, I'm a future partaker. So, so not only currently what I've just seen the sufferings of Christ, but I'm a future partaker of something beautiful. Notice what he says there. He's resting and trusting and imagining a different future awaiting. He says, um, as well as partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. We're in a time where... Um, even as Harbor Network brought out, the two things that we focused on this last week were conviction and imagination. And so the word imagination may be weird to you, but the Bible is filled with holy imagination, meaning, hey, when Jesus is saying to these disciples, you're going to be persecuted, but remain faithful and follow me. Well, what, what does that mean? What does that mean? They start imagining. And it's when God says beautiful things, uh, this is what the future may look like. It means you're standing on his convictions, but there's this holy imagination along with what that would look like. For the church, when we move into an area in a church plant or are dreaming and thinking through, Lord, what would you do to reach lots and lots of people with the gospel? That takes some holy imagination. They don't mean when they're talking about that, like let's go and like dream up cool, cool plans or strategies for that, but like trusting the Lord and God, you could do immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine. You're the one who does this work. Jesus said, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Do you really believe that? If so, as you're living your life, go and make disciples, baptizing them and, and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. I'm going to be with you. I, I have authority in heaven and earth, and I'm going to be with you to the very end. I'm not leaving you. Do you really believe that I have that kind of power? And Peter here is saying, I have the conviction. I saw the sufferings of Christ. It's all based off of what Christ did on the, on the cross. And this gospel as it goes forth, I'm resting in a future glory that we can't even imagine. I'm a partaker of the future glory. Um, 
Notice he says this. When he gets to this exhortation, he says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Very, very typical for a lot of guys that can go through seminary or or take over churches. Um, The idea is it's my church. And some guys come with an agenda of, now your role as a congregation is to accomplish my goals, my agenda. And so when you come on, you're looking for volunteers. You're trying to get people to do my agenda. And notice Potter. Peter here um, is saying, we call him Potter in Salisaw. Um, and Peter here is saying, um, the flock of God, every soul blood-bought by Christ. It is God's flock. It is Jesus' flock of people. And so elders must think through that to go, you never have an agenda, a side agenda, where you're trying to have evil gain, where you're trying to have um, your own agenda, your own pursuits, using people to either make you feel good about yourself or to um, impress people or to have position or status or riches. Peter's going, that's not at all what this is about. And again, we're going to be looking at why he learned that lesson. So um, notice this is God's church, God's possession. He says, shepherd the flock willingly, eagerly, as examples. So for the heart of elders, um, that's what he's laying out there. Let's, let's think about for the, the part of a congregation. In Hebrews 13, 17, um, he says this, Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Sadly, you've probably seen it. I've seen it. I've seen, I've been in leadership meetings where the bulk of the thinking, the bulk of the, 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 the meeting time was not about the souls of the people. How are they doing? How can we care for them? Sometimes it gets off to, hey, how can we do this? I saw this really cool thing on Facebook where they're doing that. And, this, and I'm not saying Facebook or, Facebook or social media is bad. Um, I'm not saying that using those, that those are fine, um, the 5%. But the 95% for elders should be for the souls of people, the, the hearts of people, knowing where the people's hearts are, and then taking the time to patiently pray and care for and administer, just continually be faithful with the gospel, faithful with prayer, faithful leading in those ways, not these other pursuits. And so if that's the case, it's easy for a congregation to submit. It's like the husband and wife thing. A wife can submit to that type of husband because she knows he has her best interest. He's not domineering over her. He's not ruling over her. And so there's this beautiful picture there of, of godly leadership and godly submission that work in a beautiful picture. And so obey your leaders, submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. I really, truly, truly believe that's going to be standing in, for, in, in front of Jesus and giving an account. Beth and Landon, did you really care? Did, did they add numbers to you so your church looked successful? Were you concerned about where their hearts were at? How did you deal with that when you heard things, when you saw interaction, when they came to you with things? How did you, did you just blow them off? Did you truly take some time and patiently care? Even if they came with complaints and critique, were you still going to stay there and be with them and love them and, and care for them? Or do you just dismiss them? No. And so that's what he's saying here. Um, those who will give an account of each soul. That's a weighty thing. I, I don't know how churches can have 5,000 people and six elders. 
I just don't know, you know how you're supposed to elder and shepherd that many. Now, some people, maybe they pull it off, and maybe there's a scalability I'm just not aware of. Um, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So he's saying to the congregations there, to the people, saying it should be a joy for the elders. Sure, there's going to be heavy, weighty things that are going on in people's lives, and that's weighty, but there should be a joy in that. Are you a type of person, a type of member of a church that that the elders role with you is, is peaceful and joy? Or is it is it one of where there's groaning and groaning and groaning? And I'll just say, I will say this, I'm not a great encourager, but Sojourn Church, um, you you people that have been here, um, it is not a groaning. It's not a constant groaning. Uh, it is joy. It, it, there's difficult things that we work through, but it is joy. And it, it brings joy to see God working in souls. It's not an immediate thing. And you guys know I'm, I'm not a big immediate expectation guy. I'm, I'm thinking long term. So um, that's what kind of eldership you want, long term. Um, you, you, you want to think through what does that look like? You don't expect one month or four month situations to change but just being patient with that. But they're going to give an account over souls. So um, the second thing that we're going to look at is, is let's go back backwards a little bit and let's look at um, this situation in Matthew 16. It's a famous part that you know where, where he talks about the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church offensive. In their particular cultural moment and in our particular cultural moment, um, it seems like the church is losing. There's not a book out there in the last 15 years. It's got worse in the last five to six years that says that the church is growing, that people's faith is revitalized, that things are going great. Um, in the church, the numbers are going down and down and down. And that was before COVID. COVID, there's a lot of churches that have, you know, they're only about 65% of the people have stayed gone because they realize, hey, Sunday morning, it's really nice just to wash our car and walk the dog and go to the lake and do all these different things. And so they've kind of just dropped dropped off the church. And so um, in this, it seems like the church is losing its effectiveness. When you look culturally, you look at you know, the options we have across the political climate. Um, not a lot of people that you'd go, man, that's the most Christ-like leader I can imagine, right? They're, they're just not popped up all over. And so for young people, that's very disheartening. It's disheartening on the church's end. It's disheartening for them politically. It's disheartening for them thinking through what's life going to be like for our kids. Uh, there's even studies showing that there's less and less children being born because people are saying, young people in their 20s and 30s are saying, why would I bring a, a child into this place? Um, and so that, that's going on. There's a lot of things that are playing into that. Let's listen to Matthew 16. It says, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do the people say the Son of Man is? Remember that? So he asked them, hey guys, come a little closer. Who do the people out there, who do they say I am? It would be the same as us going even in our syncretistic, um, you know, uh, re religiosity culture of Tulsa, where everyone has their own views of Jesus. If we were to ask, who do you say Jesus is to the people that just aren't a part of church, just our, our Bible belt, um, syncretistic uh, religious society around culture that have nothing to do with the church and haven't been to the church in years, who would you say Jesus is? We would probably get a hundred different answers, right? Well, he's, Jesus is there to make my life better. He, Jesus is there. He's supposed to make me happy. He's supposed to relieve my guilt. Um, just knowing that he exists helps me. He's going to take all my problems away. That wasn't the reasons that Jesus came for. Um, those may, may be 
side effects and ripple effects, but your life may be even more difficult following Jesus. There may be more persecution. There may be more difficulty you having to follow Jesus in a family or a workplace or a culture where it's not accepted to the point where even um, just being evangelistic now is, is looked at as being a hate crime. To share your exclusive thoughts, there's, it can be considered a hate crime. Um, so in that, thinking through, who do people say that I am? So they said, John. some say John the Baptist. Others are saying maybe it's Elijah. Others said Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But, so then he turned to them and said, so who do you say that I am? So that's a significant question that not, not only for those immediate people in that crowd, but for you to think through. You may have had a faith that as, as a child and as a teenager, you, you asked Jesus into your heart or you did whatever and you were baptized, but then you get in your 20s, you get into 30s, you get into 40s, different things happen. Things hit your life that you didn't expect. It's not on that life trajectory. And so these big events happen. If two or three or four big life events happen, um, it's shocking. And a lot of people, their faith begins to fall away. And so in the middle of all those things, Jesus' question there, so who do you say I am? And he's saying that to those apostles, to those disciples. Think through, because it's unfair for us. We know 2,000 years ago, this happened, Pentecost happened, Holy Spirit, large church, gospel spreads, and we're just here as a result of that. Wipe all that away, blank slate, blank slate. You don't know what the future holds. Your leader gets murdered and slaughtered in front of everyone, and then he says, after he's resurrected, which, by the way, is hard to believe because that doesn't happen every day, stay here in Jerusalem. Now, I, I, I want to go back home. Hey, I'll share the gospel back where I came from, Jesus. No, stay here in Jerusalem. And the Holy Spirit's going to come, and you're going to talk about me, live your life just as focused, being my witnesses in Jerusalem, you get killed for being a Christian in Jerusalem. You get persecuted for following Jesus and, and proclaiming Jesus in Jerusalem. You just died. The same people that, that killed you, they're here. And, and, and he's saying, who do you say that I am? Blank slate, don't know what the future holds. Blank piece of paper. It was good for them to have to think through this one question. Who do I say Jesus is? It's easy when we've grown up around the church. Who do you say Jesus is when there's not a thing called the church yet? When you go into an area and there's not churches, who do you say Jesus is? When life seems like everything's falling apart, your life trajectory is crashed. When, when life crashes, the economy crashes, politics you can't trust, uh, even in the church, all kinds of leadership problems and failures, who do you say Jesus is? And they had to take the step going, I believe you're still faithful. I believe you're still going to be there. We know that 10 out of the 11, they all died for their faith. Possibly John the Apostle was the only one who didn't face martyrdom. Um, and they tried to kill him earlier, and he just lived through it somehow supernaturally as far as church history goes. But the other 10 were going to face that. Who do you say that I am? Are you willing to die for this faith? Now they're filling in that blank piece of paper. Here's what happened in the church. Um, so thinking through that question, each one of us needs to think through, who is that? And, and Peter's response is, you are Christ, the son of the living God. So good answer. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. 
So even right there, he's going, hey, it wasn't Peter that you were smart enough or you were better than these other disciples. Hint, hint, by the way, because you do think you're better than the other disciples, and they're about to get to that. But it wasn't even your intellect or your ability, and it wasn't even me working the miracles. You would think that they became believers because Jesus worked miracles and taught great lessons, and they just went, man, it makes sense. I'm going to follow this guy. And Peter and Jesus just said, that wasn't why you believe. You actually believe because the Father opened your eyes to see that. Even my miracles. How many thousands of people, tens of thousands, come and gather on Saturdays and Jesus worked miracles? Jesus had great teachings and people, that was cool. Hey, is he coming back next Saturday? Oh, two weeks, we'll be back. They weren't in love with Jesus. They were, they were, they were entertained by him. That's what the crowd said. And John said that Jesus never gave himself over to them because he knew they were just looking at him like an entertaining piece. And so here, even the disciples, who do you say Jesus is? And so he says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, most time people think of the gates of hell, Satan attacking us, satanic things happening, the demons attacking us. And so it's, it's almost like this idea that we are behind some protective gates, right? Like here at Metro, like we've got these gates, the gates are set out there to protect because there's a lot of things that can happen if somebody comes walking through uh, in, a, in a bad situation. And so we think of gates are for protection, Jesus just flipped it and said, hey, there's souls behind those bars. The gates of hell cannot prevail against the offensive nature of the church moving forward, advancing the kingdom, spreading the gospel, and ripping souls out of the gates of hell. So the gates of hell have no power over the gospel message going forward, the power of the Spirit. And so a beautiful flip there for them to think through. Again, blank slate, blank piece of paper. They don't know what that looks like. And yet Jesus is laying some foundational truths that they're going to pick up and remember. Who do we say Jesus is? Do we believe and trust that if we go out and just proclaim this gospel, he said to be his witnesses, that God's going to grow his church? And they weren't calling it the church at the time, right? So some beautiful things there. Um, In Matthew 16, right after this, so after this beautiful thing, and you know Peter he probably just like, did you guys hear that? He went and got some tea or something. He's like, do you notice what Jesus said over there? He said, upon this rock, Peter, I want to build my church. Guys, I've tried to show you guys. I knew the right way. Guys, I, I've been right all along. Got things figured out. Five minutes later. From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests. So from this time on, what, what the, the narrator, Matthew here, he does a good job. He, he does it several times where he gives you some commentary. From this point on, this, this part of Jesus' ministry, he starts telling them repeatedly, I'm going to go and die and be raised three days later. I'm going to go and die. And, and you just, it's just weird how um, it doesn't even tell us how the disciples are like, yeah, yeah. So anyway, and so then in this situation, he's going through the same thing. He's starting to say this repeatedly. He says, and be killed, and on the third day be raised again. So Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord. This will never happen to you. So just think that we, we, we make that like, you know, like Peter's foolish do you ever feel loyalty to God? Do you ever feel like you'd be the one who would stand up? This is what Peter feels like. Not me, Lord. I would never betray. I'll never let this happen. I'm powerful. 
<laughs> until Jesus has to reach down with that, that dead ear lay on the ground, stick it up, and Peter's like, I'm out. I'm, I'm out. Like, I'm done. Like, don't, don't ask me if I'm with him. And so here Peter sticks his foot in his mouth, and, and Jesus rebukes him and turns to him and says, Get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. For you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And granted, very difficult to understand, but Jesus had just said, I'm going to die on the cross and be resurrected. Now, Peter couldn't get a glimpse of that, right? Remember, blank sheet of paper. Can't figure that out. Thinks loyalty to God looks like this. And yet, loyalty in that way would mean we wouldn't let Jesus die on the cross. That's the exact reason he came. So now that question again, who do you say Jesus is? Central aspect of faith. It's about him on the cross. Um, get behind me, Satan. One second, hey, you're the rock, and, and the church is built on this idea of faith, and Peter could have taken it very pridefully, and then he turns like, hey, get behind me, Satan. And so um, very difficult for poor Peter. Um, then you think through, does, does Peter get the message? In John 21, the, the, the third aspect here is when the disciples have seen Jesus killed and slaughtered, Peter has been called, you know, the rock, and also get behind me, Satan. So kind of difficult to walk, walk through that. And then you go through, and Jesus dies on the cross a few months later, and then he is resurrected three days later. And this is John's account in 21, after the resurrection, and they've already seen Jesus a couple times. It says in 21, verse 4, Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And so just so you'll know, it's kind of common. So people would sometimes go out to the shore and there would be fishermen and sometimes they were bringing their boats in and you could buy uh, at a market price there. So people would sometimes go out and say, hey, do y'all have some fish for sale? So it's common for people to do that. So it wasn't like in our mindset, like that's weird for a guy to be yelling at you as you're out there fishing, like, hey, do you have any fish? Um, so it was a very common thing for that to happen. Um, so do you have any fish? And they answered him, No. So he said to them, so cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, so remember how Peter always kind of likes to, I think I'm number one in line. John repeatedly in his gospel keeps referring to the, the, the disciple that Jesus really, really loves. He, he does that several times. Um, the disciple that Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it's the Lord. So Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, and he, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. So he jumps off the boat. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from land, but only about 100 yards off. So think through this group of people. So they have, they, they've seen this. They probably heard John say that. Peter jumps in the water. This is awkward. And now he, he's trying to beat the boat, and they get up there, and, and notice the scene. What it reveals to us is that the rest of the disciples, they kind of have an idea that it might be him, but they're just so awkward. Why are they so awkward? Why are they not, oh my God, Jesus, Jesus, it's you. They've already seen him twice, but, but the, the Bible kind of has, it doesn't fill in all the blanks from the first time he appeared, and then it seems as a few days go by, there's a second time he appears to them, and then there's a, a couple of days, and there's a third time. That he appears. Now he appears some more times, but but in that it doesn't lay out for us a very chronological step by step thing. So they're kind of weirded out by this. What's going on? They're not weak. They're not pitiful. It's just like us. Disillusionment had set in. The, can you imagine what was going on for them? You've given up 
everything that you had. This mesmerizing person, Jesus, has told you story after story. You've seen all his teaching. You've witnessed firsthand all the healings, all the miracles. You've seen all these things. You've asked him questions. You've seen him deal with people that were, that were horrible, and yet he, he gave grace and mercy in a way that you've never understood it before. Um, remember, even our parables, we, we, we talked about this early band of followers uh, and these parables. They believe Jesus is, is now, they've given their life to this one hidden treasure. They've given their life to this one pearl of great price. Those, those first things where Jesus said, this is me. This is me. And they're going, I, I've walked away from everything, Lord. I followed you. And now three years later, this is what's going on. It's a wreck. You've never shown up with your powerful kingdom, with your military come in to take over the Romans or to, to defeat all the Romans and so we could establish the Davidic kingdom again. You haven't done that, Jesus. If you're them, you've witnessed so much beauty in a world scarred and hideous. Beautiful healings. He embraces some of the people that are supposed to be cursed by God. Some of the lepers and the different people, people believe they were cursed by God and yet Peter, not, uh, Jesus not only touches them, but he embraces them and shows them love and, and reorients their life. If you're them, you've heard his call. If, if anyone doesn't hate his father and mother and sister and brother, you're not even worthy of the kingdom. That's a tough one to go back that night and think through. Like, I know he would never contradict, honor your father and mother. I know he wouldn't contradict all these things, but what is he meaning that? Oh, just if he doesn't have his own category, one single passion to live for beyond everything else, that you'd be willing to trash everything else, like we talked about in that parable, that everything that you had is gain, everything I, I would give it all away if I could get this. And that's what he's saying there. He doesn't want you to start treating your mom and dad bad or your brother and sister bad. He's saying, but I should be in this one single passionate category above all other things. And they said, Lord, we followed. We've said yes to you. We've done all this. We've left our jobs. We've left our families at times. We've been out on the road doing this ministry stuff. And, and you keep talking about things getting worse and worse. And now here we are, and you just got killed. And so it's awkward. They seemingly left all that life was supposed to be about. And so we're in this awkward cultural moment where what we think life is supposed to be about, it's just not doing it exactly like it has for the last decade or two decades or three decades. And there's no promise for, for those believers in the world that, that, that 2025 to 2035, 2035 to 2045, 2045 to 2055, that it's going to be the, the nice little you know, um, place where um, the 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s saw churches just explode in huge growth and that, that, that Christianity was tied to this moral um, expression and politics. To where now you're an enemy. You are someone who is a hate person because you believe in this exclusivity. And so the same thing that they're going through. Is your version of Christianity what you thought life was supposed to be about? Is, is Jesus allowed to shift that? Is he allowed to keep asking you? So who do you say that I am now? This stage of life. This, this change. Do I have the right to ask you, who do you say that I am now? Different places, different life events. Again, if you're them, 
You think, yeah, I've answered the call. I'll follow. But now the cross has happened, an unforeseen shocking turn of events, a violent event in this journey, in this path of following Jesus. Life has completely changed following Jesus. But the corrupt religious elites, the Jews, they they just got their power vote tied to the politics of the day. Put your trust in the, the political people of the day. We're going to tie Christianity to a political party. Worked for those Jews, didn't it? And the unjust, unfair, unlistening government officials just followed through with another horrific decision that's more destructive than life-giving. Sound familiar? Where's your hope? Who do you say Jesus is today? Now from beauty and grace and reconciliation and healing and soul-satisfying truth and hope for a better future to the most incomprehensible event in the history of the galaxy. What you've now understood as the Son of God, he's beaten to a pulp, mocked, and brutally crucified. So where is God in that? And with all of that going on, what do you think Jesus, when he wakes up, is thinking, here's what I need to do. I've resurrected there's all these people that are confused. What would be the thing that I need to be doing? What should I be doing right now? What, what, what could I do? Maybe go to the courts where Herod and Pilate was. Hey, guess what? I'm back. You going to try it again? I'll resurrect again. He could have done that. Show off a little power or something. He could have went before crowds and crowds of people. Just like, hold it. We killed you, and now you raised three days there? Notice what this guy does. He decides... I'm going to go to a seashore, and I'm going to take the time to walk around getting wood. Because <sighs> I love those 11 guys. Over here dangling from a tree is Judas, still right in their minds. And here's this guy, powerful, almighty God. I'm going to take the time to go and get some firewood and some kindling, because I love these guys. The only plan I had was to, to pour my life into them, to serve them. I'm going to take the time to catch some fish. He may have done like the wedding, just, you know, just pop some miracles. They get out of the, the boat and they go over there, and here's Jesus in humility, serving and loving and feeding them. Out of all the things that he could be doing. Hey, who do you say I am? Let me get that for you taking the time to do all this stuff. Because building fires and cooking on an open, it's kind of fun, but it's kind of hard work compared to a microwave, right? I don't know about you guys, but like when I get to heaven, like I want it like 2050 version, like all kinds of, you know, comforts. I want AC. I want like immeasurably better ice than Sonic even. And I'm just afraid that what if God's plan is all of us? Like he goes, hey, the best time in the world was Jesus day or even further back, like no moving vehicles, like you're Fred Flintstone walking it. Uh, There's no devices, kids, sorry, maybe no iPhones, no Wi-Fi in heaven, because he may just go, no, it's so beautiful without all that stuff, and we can't even imagine it, and here he is showing just servanthood, him coming going, here's what's on my mind. I could be doing a thousand different things to get popularity or, or to be factual, and I'm going to go and I'm going to speak to these guys. That doesn't seem like it would be the most important thing. When they got on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. 
Now none of the disciples dared to ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Um, one of the things that we need to see is, in our human experience, when our world has crashed, and everything that we believe and thought was our only hope seems to be ripped from underneath us in complete disillusionment, two things. They don't even know how to act around Jesus or in their quickly shifting world. But Jesus has never changed. So for us, no matter what's going on in our world, no matter what changes are shifting in culture, we may not know how to act exactly. We may not even know how to even act with Jesus himself, with God himself. But he's never, ever changed. When they finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Hey, Peter, do you love me? And notice he says, more than these. Now, this was not Jesus saying, me and my omniscience, I know that you actually do love me more than these. It was Jesus going, hey, I know you love me. Here, here's a self-righteous blind spot. You think you love me more than all these people. And don't we do that sometimes in the church? Do you ever get the feeling? I just, I mean, can't, can't you see what we're trying to do? What we're trying to do as a family? We're doing everything right. We're trying to do our kids right. We're doing our finances right. We're doing our... He's not impressive. Hey, you think you love me more than these? What would be your response? Yeah, I do. Why are these people getting all the breaks? Why are these people getting all the... Why is this happening to us? These disciples are all gathering here. Here's this humble Jesus Sorry, hey, hey, Peter, do you love me more than all these? And he wasn't testifying to the fact that he did love him. He, he's challenging that you don't love me. Because to lead the church, to be this future apostle and disciple and foundational element, you can't have self-righteousness. You can't be a self-righteous jerk thinking that you're the one. I'm the one who come and bought this. I'm the one who laid down my life. I'm the one who continues to serve you. I'm the one who continues to manifest myself through the Spirit. I'm the one who's doing that. If you come out thinking that you're this self-righteous, got it all figured out, right doctrine, right practices, right life, you're going to destroy the church forever it starts. So then you go back to Peter and 1 Peter. Hey, elders, do this willingly. Do it eagerly with the right heart in a, in a humility as, as one who's going to give an account from Hebrews. Peter learned over those 35 years, didn't he? So Jesus, so Peter responds, Lord, you know that I love you. So what, what would you want to say? And Jesus tells him, feed my sheep. Get your self-righteousness out of the way. There's one specific thing that's going to build the church. It's going to be the Word of God. Think about that. Again, blank slate, blank piece of paper. What do we do now? Jesus ascended to heaven. What are we going to do? I don't know this. I mean, I don't know much, but I know he said we better feed his sheep. What is he talking about there? He's not talking about food. He's talking about spiritual food. I know this better. The centerpiece of the church, a foundation on God's Word. If we ever get off from that and start you know, playing B and C and D and we leave that one behind, it's going to fall apart. And We've seen that denominationally. We've seen that churches. We've seen that with all kinds of things. He goes on to the second time. He said a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Lord, you know that I love you. He says, tend my sheep. So, so now it's not just uh, an issue of um, just feeding, but it's beyond that to tending Help the sheep in protection and provision. 
This picture of this true shepherd, this picture of this, this shepherd that's willing to um, lay down his life for the sheep, to care for them, to guard them, protect them. So it's tending them as well as feeding them. So again, the early church, that's what they're going to need to know. He said to him a third time, Simon, do you love me? And Peter's emotionally grieved at this point because he asked him a third time, do you love me? He said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. He says, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you're going to stretch out your hands and others are going to dress you and carry you to where you don't want to go. And this, he said, to show the kind of death that he was going to glorify God. And then he comes back with this, follow me. So again, just the specificness of that. It's not a role of hierarchy. It's not a role of position. It's not a role of pride. Jesus just exampled. Here's what this looks like. If you say that that's what I am, then you better be imitating me. You better be loving in this way. And I want the feeding of the sheep, the tending of the sheep, the caring for their souls, and just that, that first prominence of making sure that the word of God is there. He says, keep following me. So that's how the early church landed on gathering on the Sabbath, hearing the Old Testament and the new teachings of Jesus before the books of the New Testament were even written, going, hey, all of this makes sense only in light of Jesus. All of this was pointing to Jesus and fulfilled in Jesus. So look at this. Um, We have the chance to reimagine a more beautiful future. Maybe more difficult in your voting booth. Maybe more difficult in your workplace. Maybe more difficult in the economy. Maybe more difficult in those things. He, he never told us that it, that it wouldn't be that way. Now, there's, there's false teachers that tell us that, yeah, Jesus makes all those things easy for us because that's what we want, ease and comfort. I think the United States has about 60 years of ease and comfort in being a Christian. But in the, in, in the beauty of a whole bunch of people who said, we're fine walking away, well, then we have the chance to reintroduce them to the true Jesus. We have a chance for something beautiful coming about. When, when everything looks um, like it's disillusioned, how much clearer will Jesus be? How much clearer will his gospel be? How much clearer will it be to ask people, well, who do you say Jesus is? And let them talk about what they thought he was supposed to be, and that's why we left the church. Or we thought church was going to do this to our life. We thought church was, well, that's not Jesus. So imagining a more beautiful day in a cultural moment of fear and skepticism and distrust and confusion that seems like it's successfully killing the idea and hope of Jesus using his church to continue to establish the kingdom, even when we don't know how to act or what to do in this quickly shifting world, Jesus has never changed Jesus is changing all things, and he has never left his church. It may seem like that all over the world. We, we've just never, these generations, we haven't been under persecution or suffering like other parts of the world have been for the last 500 years. And so to follow Jesus in this may mean that it, it, it's different for the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years. So are you, are you raising your kids and not just on, on little fill-in-the-blank Sunday school answers, Jesus died on the cross for sins? What does that really mean? What does that look like? Are you raising your family to the point where, it's, where you're, you're thinking through, what will that be like for them to be in a culture that's anti-God? 
That's anti-church. Are, are you okay with that? You'll be mad at God if it happens that way? Because it's happened through centuries for other places. So the beauty that he says, I'm still the one who founded this. I'm the one who bought souls. I'm still in charge of my church. He said, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And so um, sometimes when things are at their weakest point, that's all God allows to show his great strength and power. And so um, as we go to the Lord's Supper, I pray that you'll walk away looking at the faithfulness of God, the faithfulness to his church, that he's not going to leave, he's never changed, that he is still changing things and changing people's hearts, um, but that we need to remain faithful to him in that. So let me pray, and then I'll, uh, we'll turn over to the Lord's Supper. Father, we thank you for the scriptures that we just walked through different places of Peter's life, Lord. It didn't highlight Peter as a strong leader that many sermons try to point to. It didn't highlight Peter as the type of person to be like. It didn't highlight Peter at all. It highlighted Jesus and his grace and his mercy, even with a close friend who continued to fail, continued to have flaws, continued to sin, continued to be selfish and self-righteous. And yet you used a flawed, failing Peter to resent, the, to resent the gospel and to go forward in your, in your gospel progression. You used these failing people, these flawed, sinful people, even after they were saved, to continue to expand the kingdom. So we ask the same for us, Lord. Would you give us eyes to see a beautiful future of clinging to you in desperate devotion and to see how you would work among us, to see how you would work among um, our lives and our community, and that would spread to other places throughout the world. I pray that you would capture the hearts of us, that you would capture the hearts of our children, uh, of the youth and the, the smaller kids, that you would let them see a, a beautiful, glorifying Jesus that is worthy of their lives to be lived. As we go to the Lord's Supper, would you be honored and glorified in that? In your name we pray, amen. As we go to the Lord's Supper, um, this is what we feast on every week. This is what we take part in every week. We look at the blood of Christ spilt in our place. We look at his body broken. We take part of that. We feast on him. And we'd say, if you're a person who's here and you don't know where you're at with Christ, and we say, hey, don't, don't feast on these elements of the Lord's Supper. We want to guard that table and say, this is only for those who are true believers. So if you're not a follower of Christ, we'd say, don't partake of that but consider taking part of Christ. Consider asking him for the forgiveness and, and the reconciliation with God that he bought on the cross. And for the first time for you to say, now I know for sure that I'm part of the body of Christ, the universal body, that for the first time I can know for sure that I'm truly a follower of Christ. And, and Jesus, I want to commit my life to you. These little elements over here can't do that for you, but Jesus is alive and his spirit can bring that to you if you need to do that. And then let somebody know about that. For the rest of us believers, we do this every week just to keep that before us as a beautiful picture of baptism and the Lord's Supper that he gave us as um, elements for us to celebrate. So as we partake of that, um, let me pray and then I'll release you. And then we'll come back after we do the Lord's Supper and we'll bring Tyler and Suja and their families up. Father, um, we are amazed. There's no point in gathering together. Beautiful days, beautiful beaches, beautiful lakes, are very enjoyable. There would be no point in gathering together 
if it wasn't for your word being true, if it wasn't for you being the God that your word leads us to. So we rejoice in you. We treasure you. There'd be no reason for bringing on elders if it wasn't we could trust in you. If it wasn't that we believe in your plan for the church, the ecclesiology, we wouldn't do any of these things, Lord, if it wasn't for you and your redemptive plan that you have saved us, not because of our works, not because of our morals, not because of our intellect, but because of your grace alone. That in faith alone, we can, we can turn to Christ alone. So we thank you for all of that. We pray that you would be glorified as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, looking to you, cherishing you in that. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.